Well, welcome to First Church. So glad you are joining us, whether you are here on site or online. We are glad that you are worshiping with our church family here today. And I know we have a bunch of people online right now. I know we have Ashley who's in Wichita watching with us. And also we have Bob and Eleanor who are in Kentucky, by the way. Those are my parents. They worship with us every week, but they signed in for the first time today. So let's welcome in our online family here today. Get loud. Let them know that we are glad, everybody from all over the country and globe, that they're worshiping with us here today. And we are starting a new series. I'm excited about it. It's called GOAT, and it has nothing to do with animals, and it's not a negative thing either. I was told that a few generations ago that if you were labeled the GOAT in your place of work or on a team, that it was a bad thing. It meant that you had messed up or caused some failure or whatever. No, in today's culture, being labeled the GOAT is something, the GOAT is something that you want. In fact, it stands for this. It stands for the greatest of all time. And if you're familiar with the sports world at all, you know that in every sport, there is somebody who claims to be the GOAT, the greatest of all time at that sport. Right now, there's a debate going on. It's been going on for a while between whether Michael Jordan or LeBron James is the GOAT when it comes to basketball. And let me tell you something. I know what the answer is already. If you can't tell by what I'm wearing today, I know who the GOAT is when it comes to basketball. But I want to see, yeah, hang on. I get it. I want to see where our church is. We're going to take an official poll here real fast, okay? So when it comes to basketball, if you believe that LeBron James is the greatest of all time. Let me hear you. This is why I love this church right here. This is why I love this church. And if you believe that Michael Jordan, MJ, is the greatest of all time, yeah. And all God's people said amen. All right. Yeah, but it's not just in basketball. There are different uh, goats depending on the sport that you're talking about. I mean, who's called the goat when it comes to football right now? Who has that reputation? Tom Brady, right? Now, you may not like Tom Brady, but he's considered the goat. And when you look at his stats, it's kind of hard to argue that. What about when it comes to gymnastics? Who's considered the goat? Yeah, Simone Biles, exactly. And look at all those medals. You understand why she's called the goat. What about hockey? Who's considered the greatest of all time in hockey? Yeah, Wayne Gretzky, none other than Wayne himself. And then who's considered the greatest of all time when it comes to swimming? Michael Phelps, yeah, exactly, all those medals that he won as well. When it comes to sports, there are a lot of people who are known for being the greatest of all time, but it's not just sports. If you Google that term, goat, you will find that people claim to be the goat, the greatest of all time in a lot of different areas, whether it's cooking or journalism or certain crafts or hobbies. There are people who claim to be the goat in many different areas. I even read the other day online that there is someone who claims to be the goat when it comes to the game of Papa Shot. Anybody ever play? played the Papa Shot arcade game before? Let me see some hands. Yeah, a lot of people. We actually bought one of these for my son Alex for Christmas this past year, and he loves it. He plays on it all the time. In fact, we had grandparents come and visit last weekend, and they had a Papa Shot tournament, and Alex won, and he was just like, I am the greatest. And I'm like, calm down, buddy. You were playing against Grammy and Granddaddy. You know, just calm down just a little bit. But still, he was excited. And there is, believe it or not, a goat when it comes to Papa Shot. And I'm going to tell you about him here in just a second. But before I do, I want to demonstrate how Papa Shot works in case you're not familiar. And so I've asked Sydney Van to come up here and join me. So, Sydney, would you come on up? Yeah, welcome, Sydney. 
Uh, Sydney is a senior at Owasso High School. Uh, she's been coming to church here for about a year or so, and she told me she loves it here. And we love having you here as well. She's going to go off to uh, NSU next year, study communications. So that's awesome. And she played basketball for a few years in high school. So I thought I would bring up somebody to the stage who's better than me at basketball to see how many shots she can hit in 60 seconds. So are you ready? Okay, she, she did this first service. Let's see how she does in second. So is our clock ready to go on the screen? Okay, we got six seconds. Now here's what I want for you guys to do. Every time, whoa, whoa, stop, 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 not yet. Okay, boy, man, my tech team is on it. They're ready to go. That's cool. They're excited. Okay, here's what I want for you guys to do. When the clock starts, I want for you to count out loud every shot that she makes. And Brian's going to be up here. He's going to be saying it as well. Is your mic on? Mic's on. We're okay, to go. good to go. All right. So count with him as she makes baskets and I'll be giving her her time. Okay, so here we go. Is the clock ready now? Okay, here we go. 60 seconds and go. One. One. Two. two three. three four, four. Five. Six. six seven, seven. Eight. Eight. Nine, 10, 10 11, 11, 12, 12, uh, cheer 13, on, cheer on, come on. 14, 15, 16, 16 17, 17. You got 30 seconds, 18, you got time. 19, <laughs> 20, 21. 21, here we go. Hey, that's what she got in first serve. She's already beat it, come on, keep cheering for her. 23. Four, twenty-five, twenty-six, twenty-seven, twenty-eight. You got eight seconds. Seven, thirty-one, thirty-two, five, four, three, two, one. Almost at the buzzer. All right. So how many did you get? 31, all right, 10 more than the earlier service. Awesome, well, for helping us out, we have an Academy gift card for you. So, I mean, that's a lot of pressure to do that in front of all these people. So if you would, give it up for Sydney again. Thanks, thanks for helping us out, yeah. Now, the world record holder when it comes to Papa Shot is a guy named Jay Kataka, I think that's how you say his name. If I mispronounce it, Jay, if you're watching, I'm sorry. But he actually hit in 60 seconds, 139 shots. Now, how crazy is that? Here's a video of him shooting in 60 seconds and you can see what he does. This is impressive. This is why he's the goat when it comes to pop a shot. Are you ready? Now, we don't have to watch the full 60 seconds. You get the idea, okay? This guy is really good. And you know, that's impressive. That's cool and all. But you know what? His record has not been beat since 2007. And I don't know if that's because nobody's just been able to do it or nobody really cares to try, you know? Because, you know, it's cool that he's the goat when it comes to Papa's shot. But in the grand scheme of things, what does that really matter? And yet... We celebrate things like this. You know why? Because everybody wants to be great at something. We know we can't be great at everything. Nobody can be great at everything. But we want to be great at something. We want our lives to be significant. We want our lives to matter. And because of that, we're mesmerized by greatness. We're infatuated with it. We want to do something great. 
And you know, this isn't anything new. I think that throughout the history of the human race, we've wanted to achieve greatness. If you look back 2,000 years ago, Jesus' disciples, they were having an argument one day among themselves, and you know what they were arguing about? Look at what the scripture says in Mark chapter 9. They argued about who was the greatest. They were arguing, who's the greatest disciple? Who's the greatest follower of Jesus? Now, that's kind of an odd thing to argue about, but that's what they were arguing about. It was a competition, right? Who's the greatest? And what's interesting is Jesus will correct them, but he doesn't correct them for seeking greatness. He corrects them because they have the wrong definition of greatness. But he doesn't correct the fact that they wanted to be great. I find that interesting. In fact, just one chapter later, Jesus is going to say in Mark chapter 10, if you want to be great, here's what you need to do. And we're going to talk about that today. But I just want you to realize, Jesus isn't saying there's anything wrong with seeking greatness. In fact, God wired into our hearts this desire to do something important with our lives, to do something significant. To do something great. We all have this dire, this desire deep within us to do something great that we will be remembered for. But the question is, what's your definition of greatness? Because oftentimes what we consider to be great isn't necessarily what God considers to be great. See, the world seeks after success and status. That's their definition of greatness, achievements and accolades. And don't misunderstand me, there's nothing wrong with having success. There's nothing wrong with having wealth. There's nothing wrong with achieving things. I'm not saying that at all, but we're not supposed to find our identity in those things. That's what Solomon did. Solomon was a wise man who loved God and he became king over Israel and was the wealthiest man around. And I want you to listen to what he says as he looks back and reflects on his life in the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Was there anything wrong with Solomon becoming king? No, God wanted him to be king. Was there anything wrong with him having the wealth of a king? No, not at all. Was there anything wrong with him having power or authority? No. Where he went wrong was that he tried to find his identity in those things. He thought that those things made him great. So that's what he sought after. And Solomon lets us know in the book of Ecclesiastes that he missed what true and lasting greatness really looks like. And that's why when Jesus teaches his disciples, he doesn't say there's anything wrong with wanting to be great. He just says a lot of times we have the wrong definition of greatness. And so what he wants to do is define what greatness really is in God's eyes. See, following Jesus, following Jesus doesn't remove our desire for greatness, but it reshapes what greatness looks like. And so what we're going to be doing in this series is we're going to be looking at God's definition for greatness. You know who we're going to learn from? The goat himself, the greatest of all time himself, Jesus Christ. And we're going to learn from his own teachings what it truly means to live a great life, to achieve greatness in God's sight. 
In one of those conversations, when Jesus was talking about greatness, it happens in Mark chapter 10, the chapter right after the chapter we looked at a second, the verse we looked at when the disciples were arguing about who is the greatest. And the thing is, you would think that after Jesus kind of says, hey, listen, you guys have the wrong definition of greatness, that the disciples would, you know, stop talking about it like that, but they still don't get it. Because look at what happens next in Mark chapter 10. It says, then James and John, who are two of the disciples, the sons of Zebedee, their brothers also, came to Jesus and they said, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, let's just pause right there for a second. That's a pretty bold request, isn't it? Can you imagine coming to Jesus and being like, hey, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we want, no questions asked. Is that how you pray normally? I mean, is that your attitude? Jesus, do whatever we ask and don't ask any questions. That's what they basically say. They obviously feel close to Jesus. And listen to how Jesus responds here. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. See, James and John, as well as the other disciples, they have the wrong view of Jesus. See, they thought that the Messiah was going to come to be this earthly king who would take over the world, basically, who would politically rule, who would beat out the Roman Empire because they hated the Romans and the Romans were oppressive to the Jewish people. And so this Messiah was going to come on the scene and he was going to sit on a literal throne and he was going to rule all nations and he was going to make sure that the Jews rose to power. And so when this happened, when Jesus finally reigned over a physical kingdom that ruled over all other kingdoms on the earth, James and John say, we want to be on your right and your left. We want to be right there with you in power. We want to be your vice president and secretary of state. We want to ride your coattails. We want to be right there with you. And here's the thing. We can jump on James and John for wanting that, but all the disciples wanted it. In fact, as you read on the passage, it says, when the 10, the 10 other disciples heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. They're furious. They're mad at James and John. Not because they're thinking, man, James and John still don't get it. They still don't understand what greatness is really all about. That's not why they're mad. They're mad because James and John beat them to it. James and John are trying to seize and grab power, the power that they wanted as well. So they're mad. And here's the thing, over and over again, Jesus has taught his disciples, my kingdom is not of this world. He plainly says it. I didn't come to establish a physical earthly kingdom. My kingdom is going to be a spiritual kingdom. But even though he taught them this over and over again, they still didn't quite get it. They still didn't quite understand. You know why? Well, I think the answer is simple. The world's perception of greatness is so pervasive, so strong, it's hard to imagine life any other way. Because we know how the world lives. We know how the world tries to achieve greatness. See, the world says you need to promote yourself. You need to do whatever you can to gain status. And the more people that you have beneath you, under you, the greater you are. It's all about climbing the ladder of success, climbing the ladder of influence and power. And so people in our culture will chase after greatness by stealing it, seizing it, taking it, doing whatever they possibly can to get it. 
And Jesus acknowledges that this is the case. In fact, he goes on to tell his disciples. He says, you've observed how godless rulers throw their weight around, he said. And when people get a little power, how quickly it goes to their heads. Doesn't that describe the culture we live in? People love to throw their power and authority around. They love to brag about their status. And when they get just a little bit of power, doesn't it quickly go to their heads? Jesus says that's how our world operates. And that's why on a regular basis, we hear people say things like, you got to do what's best for you. You got to look out for number one. You got to do whatever you possibly can to get ahead. Because we live in a world that's all about self-promotion. Because the more you promote yourself, the greater you are in the eyes of the world. At least that's what they want you to believe. And Jesus responds by saying this. He says, not so with you. Those are four powerful words. Not so with you. In other words, this isn't how my people are going to live. This isn't how my people are going to act. This isn't how life is going to be like in my kingdom. This is how the world defines greatness, but this is not how God defines greatness. Not so with you. Because Jesus knows how our culture defines greatness. Our culture says greatness comes by promoting yourself. That's what our world tells us. And that's what many of us have been taught to believe. That's why we have so many people who are workaholics. Because they think if I just keep working then I'll get ahead of everybody else. And it doesn't matter if I sacrifice my family or if I neglect those who I love in order to get ahead. It doesn't matter if I neglect my spiritual health or my physical health or my mental health. Just as long as I stay ahead of everybody else. That's why we have people who push their kids in an unhealthy way because they believe their kids are a reflection of them and so they continue to push their kids to do more and do more in an unhealthy way because they want to achieve greatness through them. That's why we have so many people who buy stuff they can't afford because they're living in competition with everybody else and they gotta stay ahead. So if their neighbor gets something or if their friend puts on Facebook they're going on a vacation, they gotta do it too. Because you got to compete, you got to stay ahead. And the problem with promoting yourself is it's rooted in something that will eventually destroy your life. It's rooted in this thing called pride. And this is what the Bible says about pride it says, Pride leads to destruction, a proud attitude brings ruin. Did you catch here what Proverbs is saying? Pride will destroy your life. Pride will ruin your life. You want to wreck your life? Be consumed by pride. That's what the Bible is telling us. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this verse. He says, first pride, then the crash. The bigger the ego, the harder the fall. Isn't that true? Maybe some of you have been there before. And that's why the Bible plainly tells us that God opposes the proud but he gives grace, he gives favor to the humble. Why does the Bible say God opposes? God is against the proud. Because God knows what pride does to us. God knows the destruction, the damage that pride causes. 
He knows that pride doesn't bring out the best in us. Now let me just clarify. When I say pride, I am not talking about confidence. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about arrogance and selfishness and having a large ego. That's what I'm talking about. You guys know what I mean. There's nothing wrong with having confidence as long as that confidence doesn't shift over to arrogance, selfishness. Because when you have that type of pride in your life, it will ruin your life. It will destroy your life. And that's why in Proverbs chapter six, it lists seven things that God hates And you know what's at the very top of that list? It says, the Lord hates proud eyes. Out of all the sins that God hates, he hates pride the most because I think pride is at the root of most other sins. God hates pride. Now, that's kind of hard for me to understand because I was taught by my mama that you're not supposed to hate anything or anyone. You don't use that word hate. And yet the Bible uses it. God hates pride because he knows the damage that pride will do. See, God hates pride because he loves us. At the last church that I served, there was this lady named Joyce, and her husband passed away of pancreatic cancer. And he was a godly man. He was a leader in our church. I love that man dearly. I love his whole family. And he was diagnosed, and within just like three or four months, he died. It was quick. And I remember at his funeral, we celebrated his life because he was a faithful follower of Jesus and we knew where he was. We knew he was safe in the arms of Jesus. There was no doubt about that. We knew that his hope was greater than his cancer. But I remember talking to Joyce, his wife, and I remember her saying, you know, I know where my husband is and I know the hope that we have in Jesus, but I still hate cancer. And I get it, I do too, and you probably do as well. It's not that our hope isn't greater than cancer, but we still hate it because we hate what it does to someone's life. We hate what it does to families, the pain that it causes. And I believe that's how God feels about pride. God hates pride because he loves us. He knows that pride will ruin relationships, that it will destroy so much spiritual potential, that it will sidetrack churches and break up marriages and divide families. God knows the consequences of pride. He sees pride as a character disease. And that's why he wants for us to avoid it. Because he knows what pride does. Let me just share a few of the consequences of pride with you. First of all, pride separates us from God. You know why? You become self-reliant. You think you can handle life on your own. And so you start to live like you don't need God. Now, it's not that you actually would say that you don't need God out loud, but that's just how you live. You still believe in him and everything, but you start praying less and less, maybe not at all. You stop studying scripture because you got this all figured out. Worship with God's family isn't that big of a priority. You don't feel like you need it. You're self-reliant. And so you just get further and further away from God because of your pride. But pride, it also fuels comparison. Because here's the thing. When you're always looking out for yourself and you want to be the best 
in people's eyes, then you're always comparing yourself to everyone else. So you're always trying to stay ahead. So like I said, when the neighbor gets something you don't have or a friend goes on a trip that you've never been on, you want to get that thing or you want to go on that trip. And so you're constantly competing with everybody else. But here's the thing. Comparison will rob your life of joy because there will always be someone who has what you don't have. There will always be somebody who can do something that you can't do. And so if you're constantly comparing yourself to everybody else, you will rob yourself of joy. And you won't see the good that's actually in your life right now. But pride also leads to selfishness. It produces selfishness. Because again, we're all about ourselves, and so we stop thinking about others. And so we start to neglect those we love, those we care about start to neglect our families so that we personally can get ahead. And so we continue to promote ourselves at the expense of others. But pride also, well, it leads to a hypercritical spirit to where you're quick to point out what everybody else is doing wrong, but you don't want anybody else to point out what you're doing wrong. And so you're quick to say, hey, that coach doesn't know how to coach or that leader doesn't know how to lead, or that church doesn't know how to do worship, or whatever. You know, you're quick to point out everybody else's flaws, but you don't want anybody else to talk about your flaws. And here's the thing, when you are around people who are hypercritical, it's miserable, because they're always seeing the negative, and they never see the positive. I see a lot of that on social media. People who are quick to point out what everybody else is doing wrong, you guys have probably been there too. You've seen that too. But then lastly, pride also blinds our self-awareness because we no longer see what pride is doing to our lives. We no longer see how toxic it is, how it's destroying us, and we no longer see the sin in our lives anymore. We're blinded to what pride and sin is doing to us. And that's why Jesus says, Not so among my people. My people aren't going to live that way. My people aren't going to have that definition of greatness. This is how my people are going to live. He says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you, here it is, must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says that in God's eyes, in God's kingdom, greatness comes through service. Greatness doesn't come by stepping on people, but by serving people. Let me put it this way. In God's kingdom, you don't ascend to greatness, but you descend into greatness. That's how God's kingdom works. And that's how God's kingdom is advanced. Jesus says true greatness comes not by promoting yourself, but by denying yourself. And there's a huge difference, and that's not what we see in our world around us. But Jesus says, you want to be a good dad or mom, a good husband or wife? You serve your family. You want to be a good leader at work? You serve your coworkers. You serve your employees. You want to be a good teammate? You serve your team so that the team is successful and you don't get all the glory. 
Now, I know what you might be thinking. Yeah, that sounds great in theory, Chad. It really does. But that's not how the world works. We live in a cutthroat, dog-eat-dog world. I mean, that's just not how the world works. If you want to have influence, then you need a platform. You need power. You need authority. You need to go noticed. And here's the thing. Slaves and servants, they are those who are forgotten about. They are those who go unnoticed. And so it's a great theory, Jesus. But practically speaking, it just doesn't make sense. And Jesus has an answer for that. And you know what his answer is? Himself. Look at what he says. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If anybody had the right to lord their authority and power and pedigree and birthright over others, it was the Son of Man. But even the goat himself, Jesus Christ, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give up his very life as a ransom for many. And Jesus says, that's how you change the world. Jesus could have come and reigned from a physical throne, but he didn't. Instead, he came and went to the cross. And he changed the world by serving it. And he says, if you want to advance my kingdom on earth, that's how it's done. That's your strategy. Because when our primary identity is servant, We take Jesus' heart, his mission with us wherever we go. Guys, if you want a better jail system, you send Jesus' servants there. If you want better schools, you send Jesus' servants there. You want better streets, send his servants. You want a better marketplace, send his servants. You want a better world, you send out his servants. You want less homeless, send his servants. You want less isolation and loneliness, send his servants. You want less hunger and less poverty, you send his servants. Because when our mindset is service and not status, we impact and change the world. And that's why I love our church. Because we're a church that serves. You guys know last December we started our Unstoppable Initiative And we asked our church to double over the next two years our operating budget. And you guys committed to giving $10.3 million over the next two years so that we could do even more ministry locally and globally. And right now, I said this a few weeks ago, and it's still true. We are ahead of schedule from where we need to be when it comes to our unstoppable initiative. And I don't say that to brag. I say that to say thank you. Because in the midst of a bad economy and craziness all around the globe, you guys still believe in service. And so you are devoted and investing in God's, you're devoted to and investing in God's kingdom. And so you're going to be getting an information brochure in the mail this week. It's going to be an update, our quarterly update, our first quarterly update on our Unstoppable Initiative. So you're going to see where we're at right now. And it is exciting to see all that God is doing through our Unstoppable Initiative. So if you've given it all to First Church over the past three months, you're going to be receiving one of these quarterly updates in the mail. And I can't wait to celebrate with you some of the stuff that God is doing right now. Last week, we had a dollar drive for Ukrainian refugees 
You guys, last week, you guys gave almost $6,000 through a dollar drive, above and beyond your normal offering. Yeah, you can clap for that. Because you guys believe in serving those around you, even those you don't even know who live in another part of the world. And our church is going to do something else here in just over a month that we've been planning for months and months. And you may have heard rumors about it, but now we can officially announce it. On May 1st, we're going to start a new service, an alternative service that's going to take place during our 9.30 hour. We already have a 9.30 service here in our main auditorium, but we're going to have an alternative service going at the exact same time, which we're going to call our Modern Hymn Service. And we are excited about this service because we believe this is a need within our community and this is a way for us to reach people who are unreached right now. And this is what I'm talking about. We're not calling this a traditional service intentionally. You know why? Because if you ask people what's traditional, you're gonna get a thousand different answers. There are many different definitions for what's considered traditional. That's why we're not calling it that. We're calling it a modern hymn service because it's gonna be a mix of both old and new hymns in an acoustic environment. And it's gonna take place in our student auditorium and we've invested a ton of money in technology so that this would be a service that we can invite people to that maybe come from a different church background who we can connect with them on this level. This is gonna be a multi-generational service. Let me say this, this is not a service that we are starting because we want to appease a certain group within our church. That's not why we're doing it. This isn't for a certain age group. This is for anybody who maybe comes from a different church background and this can be a first step for them to come and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. We consider this a ministry opportunity. And so when you come to this service, there's going to be live worship. We've hired a worship leader for that service. There's going to be communion there and prayer time and announcements just like you have in the main service. But when it comes to the sermon, we've invested in this huge larger than life screen and we're going to stream the sermon into the student auditorium and you can watch it in there as it's happening here. So I'm gonna be larger than life. I'm sorry about that, but that's how it's gotta be, okay? because I can't be in two places at once, but we believe this is going to meet a huge need in our community and a great chance to invite people who maybe have become disconnected with the church for some reason or another. And what I love is our church sees this as a, as a ministry. In fact, we went to our student leaders and our students and informed them that this was the direction we were thinking about going and at first there were some questions because right now our students meet in that room where we're going to be doing this modern hymn service. It's the student auditorium. It's still going to be. They're going to use it for every other purpose. But we basically went to them and said, we would like to use this room for our modern hymn service on Sundays. And that means you guys will have to move to another place in the building. And you know what? When we explained that this is a ministry opportunity, what I heard was our student leaders and our students were more than willing to do it. And so, if you see one of our students or our student leaders here at First Church today, I want you to thank them for putting Jesus and his mission first. Would you give it up for our students for doing that, for being willing to do that? Because we want to be all things to all people. 
And so, I want you to be praying for May 1st as we launch this new service and maybe inviting people who are looking for something like that because we want to be a church that reaches people wherever they are. So, what are you doing right now to serve others? Because the reason why Jesus was able to give up his comforts in order to serve us is because he wasn't trying to find his identity in this world. He already knew who he was in his Father. And the same is true for us. God's love, it frees us up to lay everything else down, to make the sacrifices that we need in order to serve others around us and to advance God's kingdom. So, where do you find your value today? Is it in him? You guys know that I love basketball, so I've been watching March Madness, and even though my team's not in it anymore, I've still been watching it. And I think one of the greatest moments during March Madness this year happened early on in the tournament, the first round, when Indiana was playing St. Mary's. I'm not sure if you saw this, but take a look at this clip real fast. For the senior from Mountain View, California, as that one goes over, and it's Indiana basketball. And the ball is stuck. We've got an issue now. Who's getting that? We're getting a chair out. Andy Hawkins. Now we're going to put Toss on a chair. I don't like this. No, I'm Randy Bennett. I think they need to pick Kelly up. Or maybe he's got to go on Vern's yeah. shoulders. We got Toss holding Pfeiffer. That's the, Kelly is not tall enough. <laughs> Major issues here in Portland. Why don't we get a new ball? Yeah. Why, why don't the cheerleaders, they're used to going up high. Let's get a, the, yes, get the cheerleader up. Get her up there. This is how you do it. <laughs> Give her the mob. Now she's got it. Oh, what a play. The cheerleader saves the day. And that's her one shining moment. This place is on its feet. Isn't that great? I love that. But did you catch what the commentator said? This is her one shining moment. And I know why he said that, because that's kind of a theme of March Madness. In fact, there's that song that they play at the end of the tournament every year. I don't get it. I don't like that song at all. I don't know why it's a big deal, honestly. But they play it every year at the end of the tournament. But there's a line in that song, One Shining Moment, that says this. But time is short and the road is long. In the blinking of an eye, all that moment's gone. And the whole point of the song is these athletes get this one chance, this one opportunity to achieve greatness. They're one shining moment, and as soon as that moment arrives, it's gone. That's how the world lives. They're trying to achieve greatness, but the greatness that they're chasing after, it's here one day and gone the very next. And for the sake of that cheerleader, I hope that's not her one shining moment. <laughs> And I hope that your one shining moment isn't being the best at Papa Shot or something else that doesn't eternally matter. I hope for you, for your sake, that you let Jesus be your identity. Because when he is your identity, you will learn how to live not just for one great moment, but you will live a great life that makes an eternal impact on those around you. And you will achieve greatness not in the eyes of the world, but in the eyes of God. You know, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus is talking about his return when he comes back and he uses an illustration and I want to end with this. I want you to notice what he says when he comes back. He says, blessed are those servants, talking about us, who the master finds awake 
when he comes, when he returns, when Jesus comes back. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself, Jesus will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. I have read that passage my entire life, but it wasn't until this week that I caught that. Why is Jesus coming back? Jesus is coming back because he cannot wait to serve us. Why? Because he can't stop being who he is. He is servant first, and he knows that true greatness is found not in status, but in service. And the same is true for us. That should be who we are. We should be servants first. And I believe when that's our, our identity, Jesus will use us to change the world. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for your son, the true goat, the true greatest of all time. And I pray that we will follow his example because we know that true greatness is not found in status or in self-promotion, but it's found in service. And when we serve like Jesus has served us, Father, you will empower us to change the world. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.